This is definitely not the G8. Progressive perspectives on international development and finance issues. The Millennium Development Goals. Ladies and gentlemen, the world faces yet another crisis. One which risks even greater catastrophe than climate change. And that is every bit the security threat as nuclear weapons. Yet this crisis sometimes is too invisible. It is a silent scandal of death and dashed hopes for hundreds of millions of people. I speak, of course, about the global development emergency and the need to achieve the Millennium Development Goals. The global economic crisis has made the job even harder, but also more urgent. That was Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the United Nations. He was speaking in Canada on the eve of the upcoming G8 and G20 summits in Huntsville and Toronto. Like so many others, Ban Ki-moon is counting on global leaders at these summits to jumpstart the fight against global poverty. And this time, the world needs to move beyond words to action. Ten years ago, at the dawn of the new millennium, 189 world leaders met at the United Nations General Assembly in New York. Together, they hammered out a global agreement to reduce poverty and human deprivation. From 2000 to 2015, governments around the world agreed to focus on eight key areas. Hunger, education, gender equality, child and maternal health, HIV-AIDS, environmental sustainability, and a new global partnership for development. These were known as the Millennium Development Goals, or MDGs. Back in 2000, the MDGs were considered a roadmap for a better world. After all, the map had measurable targets and clear deadlines. By simply following the map, we could improve the lives of the world's poorest people. Except it wasn't quite so simple. Ten years later, leaders will meet in New York this fall, 2010, to review how far we've come on the road to end poverty. Many observers wonder if we've made any progress at all, and some look to the G8 and G20 summits to get us back on track. The upcoming summit meeting in Canada, G8 and G20, must provide a new resolve to meet global commitment to the poor of the world. They must generate commitments that will guide world leaders at the Millennium Development Summit meeting at the United Nations in September. With the help of a few experts and specialists from around the globe, this podcast traces the origins of the Millennium Development Goals, what they are and what they're not, how far countries have come in achieving them, and how much further they still have to go. And finally, why countries are not getting there and what needs to change for this to happen. But what are the MDGs? Goal one, eradicate extreme poverty and hunger. Target, by 2015, half the population of people whose income is less than $1 a day. Goal two, achieve universal primary education. Target, ensure that by 2015, children everywhere, boys and girls alike, will be able to complete a full course of primary schooling. Goal 3. Promote gender equality and empower women. Target. Eliminate gender 
disparity in primary and secondary education, preferably by 2005, and in all levels of education no later than 2015. Goal, reduce child mort mortality. Target, by 2015, reduce the world's under five mortality rate by two thirds. Goal five, improve maternal health. Target, reduce by three quarters the world's maternal mortality rate. Goal six, combat HIV AIDS, malaria and other major diseases. Target, have halted by 2015 and began to reverse the spread of HIV, AIDS, malaria and other major diseases. Goal, ensure environmental sustainability. Target, have by 2015 the preparation of people without sustainable access to safe drinking water and have achieved by 2020 a significant improvement in the lives of at least 100 million slum dwellers. Goal 8. Commit to a global partnership. Target. Develop an open, rule-based, predictable, non-discriminatory trading and financial system. Address the special trading needs of the least developed countries. Provide them with enhanced debt relief and cancellation and provide more aid. Deal comprehensively with the debt problems of developing countries. Develop and implement strategies for decent work and work with pharmaceutical companies to provide access to affordable essential drugs in developing countries. Overwhelmed yet? Nobody said fighting poverty was easy. But that's why the MDGs are so important. They were the first attempt to paint a comprehensive picture of development and of the issues and factors that contribute to poverty. Jeffrey Sachs is director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University and a special advisor to UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. He was speaking at the Montreal Millennium Summit in 2009. The Millennium Development Goals are compact, but they're profoundly insightful in how they were formulated. Again, hard to understand how clever, but it happened. What they did was to define for the first time in a systematic and quantitative way essentially the meaning of extreme deprivation on the planet. Because they defined extreme poverty not by a single number such as a dollar a day, but by access to enough food, by access to primary education, by access to primary health for children, to safe childbirth for mothers, to gender equality of boys and girls and men and women, to freedom from pandemic disease like AIDS or malaria or tuberculosis, and to access to basic infrastructure like safe drinking water and sanitation. It's a short list, but it's a very pithy list because it's an accurate way to describe the essence of the inability of a billion people to meet their most basic needs for survival and human dignity and adequate economic productivity. Charles Abugre agrees with Jeffrey Sachs. Abugre is the Deputy Director for Africa with the UN Millennium Campaign, an organization within the UN that encourages people to take action in support of the MDGs. He stresses how the MDGs help move the debate beyond talking about markets and economics 
to talking about people. Uh, they were a reflection of, uh, you know, uh, several years of uh, work led by Amartya Sen and others that eventually reflected in the UNDP's work and the UNDP Human Development Report that had sought to move the discussion about human condition away from a narrow economist and a monometric view of well-being to a more inclusive, more broader view, which includes money, which is incomes that you get from employment or transfers, but it definitely includes access to healthcare, education, access to water, uh, and, uh, and a supportive environment. In that sense, they are revolutionary. They are attempting to set up, to establish a more broader agenda of social well-being which are much closer to the concept of development being about human beings and the conditions of human beings. So where did the MDGs come from? What are their origins? And how were they perceived? John Foster is a former researcher at the North-South Institute, a Canadian think tank. Foster was there in 2000 when governments came together around the Millennium Declaration, which led to the MDGs. He traces the MDGs back to the series of UN summits held in the 1990s on population, food, gender, the environment, and habitats, and in particular, the social summit. Well, I think it's important to go back before the millennium, and I would start with the Copenhagen Social Summit in 1995, which set global global targets for, if you like, a, a war on poverty, north and south. Like others, Foster recognizes the MDGs as an important framework to monitor and measure development in a few key areas. But he's also quick to point out that many saw the MDGs as a compromise, a watered-down version of what was really needed. At the 1995 summit and its review in 2000, northern governments working in collaboration with international organizations like the World Bank and even the UN, worked harder to lower expectations for what the Millennium Development Goals could do. You know, you have a broad objective set in 1995 of global anti-poverty strategies in, in every country in the world. That was the objective. With, with time, you know, the NGOs and others were pressing for, for specific targets and timelines. Then you have this kind of compromise between the UN and the bank and the fund and the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the rich countries, in 2000. Then you have the Millennium Development Goals giving some specifics to a limited number of objectives. And some of those specifics are extremely moderate or modest, but um, you can say somewhat better than nothing at all. Roberto Bissio is the coordinator of Social Watch, an international network of citizens' organizations working to eradicate poverty and the causes of poverty. He explains why the MDGs were not really that ambitious at the time. Actually, the MDGs do not come out of nothing. As goals, the MDGs were estimated simply by projecting 25 years uh, forward 
the evolution that those same indicators were having in the 25 years before. So basically the indicators were taken between 1960 and 1985 and they were projected into the future and then you arrived to 2015. Uh, so if things go on with business as usual, we would achieve those goals by 2015 and that is why uh, Infant mortality is supposed to be reduced by two-thirds and maternal mortality by one-third and so on. So at the moment when they were approved in the year 2000, we were saying, well, these goals are not ambitious. They are just assuming that things will go on as they have been going over the last 25 years and we will achieve those goals. So the governments, by committing themselves to achieving them, were not really committing themselves to making uh, more intensive efforts than what they were doing in the past uh, two decades before. Gemma Adaba is with the International Trade Union Confederation at the United Nations in New York. She points to the perverse nature of the MDGs. And I think basically civil society organizations felt that to have a set of goals which would simply arrive at solving half the world's problems by, by 2015 was very reductionist. It was reductionist in, in, in relation to the Millennium Declaration because the Millennium Declaration clearly states, for example, the importance of observance of human rights. And it's stronger on the question of human rights than the Millennium Development Goals, which uh, sets out these goals without you know, being specific about underpinning them with the human rights framework. So we felt from that point of view there was some reductionism that came in there, as well as setting up the goals to halve poverty and you know to halve halve a number of um, a number of things like maternal mortality and child mortality and so on by 2015. Uh, when all of these issues need to be addressed and you you need to be bold enough in terms of both funding resources and in terms of the efforts that need to be put into programs in order to, to end poverty, not get to, to halving poverty, but to ending poverty. Jerry Barr is the president and CEO of the Canadian Council for International Cooperation, the umbrella organization for more than 100 Canadian civil society organizations working on international development issues. He says we have to get the money right. We don't get a sustainable fix for global poverty by addressing needs. And the overarching signature of the MDGs is that they are about needs and gaps, things missing, medicines, pesticide, treated mosquito nets, sanitation facilities, access to drinking water, food itself. All these things are life critical naturally, but to realize the MDGs, there has to be another ingredient. Poverty is sustainably addressed only when rights are sustained. Carol Samdup is a senior advisor on economic and social rights with Rights and Democracy. It's a nonpartisan organization in Canada that encourages and supports the universal values of human rights and the promotion of democratic institutions and practices around the world. She elaborates on the issue of rights. The main thing, of course, would be uh, the legal obligation on the state to deliver certain minimum content with respect to the uh, Millennium Development Goals. 
What concerns me is the fact that the Millennium Development Goals essentially take what was once a legal obligation of the state and turn it into an aspirational goal or a discretionary policy um, to be applied or not depending on um, the political will of the moment. And in fact, one could look at that as really um, backstepping or retrogression on uh, commitments that states had already taken. So for example, we have the um, International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which defines access to adequate food, the right to health care, the right to education, the right to equality, all these issues as um, primary commitments that the state has made to its citizens. And in that sense, they define the relationship between um, citizens and the state. And I think this is what is lost in the Millennium Development Goals. And it's something, it's one of the reasons, I believe, why we aren't reaching those goals. Salil Shetty is the outgoing director of the UN Millennium Campaign and incoming Secretary General of Amnesty International. He agrees the MDGs are weak on the question of human rights. But at the same time, he feels the MDGs and human rights go hand in hand. We believe that the two are extremely complementary, that basically the MDGs provide uh, actual concrete benchmarks for progressive realization and that in each national context, uh, government and citizens should define uh, these basic needs as fundamental rights. In fact, we are working towards that in Nepal, for example, where the constitution is being written now to enshrine the goals as fundamental rights. Shetty agrees with his critics about the lack of ambition in the MDGs, but he also disagrees. I said at the beginning that I was critical of the goals when they came, but the second thing is I was also skeptical, because uh, partly because it's a UN thing, but partly it all seemed almost impossible to achieve, although at the one level it was so unambitious. At the other end, it all looked like, you know, this is really hard to achieve because of so many obstacles. The obstacles were largely related to how countries were pursuing development at the time. Shetty links the origin of the MDGs to a clear rejection of the so-called Washington Consensus. This was an approach to development devised by the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and U.S. Treasury. It was modeled after the neoliberal, market-obsessed thinking of the Thatcher and Reagan era of the 1980s. In theory, the Washington Consensus aimed to help put the economies of recipient countries back on the right track. In practice, policies were imposed on developing countries to restructure their economies, whether they fit or not. Salil Shetty. One of the important things which you shouldn't forget in relation to the Millennium Declaration is uh, uniquely in a sense in 2000, given the bad experience we had in the 1990s with the Washington Consensus and a kind of thrusting on a top-down basis, the policies made in rich countries down the throats of poor country policy or poor country governments, the Millennium Declaration, the Millennium Development Goals by choice did not say how these goals are to be achieved. All it said is we're going to take a human rights approach, but how it's going to be achieved was left to each country to define in their own context. That was a very conscious, deliberate, because very often people say, but it doesn't tell you how to get there. That was not by accident. That was a decision taken that each country should define that. Shetty's colleague, Charles Abugre, agrees. 20 years of structural adjustment programs via the Washington Consensus put the market and the private sector front and center, ahead of social and economic development. The MDGs, at least in principle, reintroduced the state as a key actor. Once again, the state would define its own development policies and deliver services to its people. So this 
Millennium Development Goals rolled that back. It rolled back then in uh, that kind of a norm and supplanted upon it the, the, an alternative norm that the state had the principal responsibility to supply health, education, water, water and housing to its people. That is the essence of the social contract, without which there is no need for a state. The MDGs also gave both developing and developed countries a focus and specific roles to play in achieving this social contract. Silil Shetty. What it's done beyond anything else is to create a unifying framework for rich and poor countries to work together. So we have a common set of you know objectives we're working towards, um, which I agreed at the global level, but fine-tuned and adapted to the national level. And I think uh, in the context of Canada, for example, in the context of rich countries, what it has done is to you know given a give a basis for additional aid commitments because it, it provided a set of outcomes which aid is meant to be focused on because um, you know otherwise in the past we had uh, so-called aid programs which are going for everything except the needs of poor people. The MDGs came with important obligations for both developing and developed countries. For their part, developing countries had to mobilize resources and develop national strategies around the first seven goals specific to their own circumstances for fighting poverty. Salil Shetty explains what was expected of developed countries. The rich countries made a commitment in relation to the eighth goal, which is called the Global Partnership for Development. And essentially what they committed were around three elements. One was on aid, and aid not just quantity but also quality. The second on debt cancellation, and the third that they will create a more level playing field on trade issues. So let's look in more detail at some of these goals. How are developing countries pursuing child and maternal health and education? How are developed countries working on aid and debt? And how do governments and NGOs move from these goals and targets to action? Firstly, child and maternal health. Most observers believe that child and maternal health, MDGs 4 and 5, are furthest off track. The goals are respectively to reduce the world's under-5 mortality rate by two-thirds and to reduce the world's maternal mortality rate by three-quarters, all by 2015. Canada's Conservative government is looking to make child, newborn and maternal health its legacy initiative for the 2010 G8 summit. That was good news for Chris Dendies, the Executive Director of Results Canada, a grassroots citizen advocacy group. Results Canada was one of six groups in the country pushing for a strong initiative on child and maternal health. Chris Dendies explains why the initiative is particularly important this year. Every year, nine million women around the world watch as their children die from, from painful, preventable illness and disease, and hundreds of thousands more women die in childbirth because they just lack access to dependable, quality health services, particularly health services close to home. Uh, so this initiative provides an opportunity to ensure significant new investments uh, that can be directed to improving and impacting on their lives and communities and also contribute to improving and impacting on the health and the well-being of our global community because it really is all connected as we've seen over the last few years. What happens anywhere else in the world you know, affects us here at home and vice versa. But beyond that, the significance of this year, 2010 in particular, is also worth noting because we're five years away from the deadline for meeting the MDGs. Uh, and MDG 4 and 5, as you know, relates to child and relates to maternal health specifically. 
And really, they're two of the MDGs that are the most off track. So if we don't act now, we might as well admit defeat on those two Millennium Development Goals. And then finally, just one other point in terms of why it's particularly important this year and important now is that we're on the heels of a global financial crisis uh, and that we know that this crisis from all sources has had a disproportionately detrimental impact on the world's poorest people. The task sounds daunting, but researchers know the causes of the vast majority of child deaths. Diarrheal disease, malaria, pneumonia, and malnutrition all have proven cost-effective solutions that cost dimes and not dollars. For diarrheal disease, hand-washing with soap, oral rehydration therapies, and zinc supplements are all simple and cheap remedies. For mosquito-transmitted diseases like malaria, insecticide-treated nets can protect people while they sleep, and a simple pin-prick test can immediately reveal whether someone has malaria and needs drugs to treat them. For pneumonia, the solution is antibiotics. For malnutrition, beyond support for better food production and distribution, micronutrients and therapeutic feeding can strengthen children's immune systems. What's more, a trained healthcare provider can deliver all these solutions in a single package. So for example, when I was in Ethiopia recently, um, what they've done there is they've created 15,000 rural health posts, no bigger than your living room, you know? And they've trained 30,000 young women, all women, who only have a grade 10 education, right? They've given them a year's training in the leading killers uh, of kids, for example, and also they've trained them in maternal health as well. And they've supplied them with the interventions that I've told you about. Clearly, it's essential to make progress on child, newborn, and maternal health. But this last point on how the government has provided these young women with training is also key. It underscores how each of the MDGs supports the others. Natalie Poulsen is the National Coordinator of the Canadian Global Campaign for Education. So a couple of examples. If we look at the MDG on extreme poverty and hunger, we know that the health and nutritional status of women and children can have long-term lasting impacts on their ability to learn later in life. If we look at child mortality, um, we know that children born to mothers with five years of, or more of education in Africa are 40% more likely to live past the age of five. Women with six or more years of schooling are more likely to seek out prenatal care, assisted childbirth, postnatal care, and, and thus reducing child and, and maternal mortality. The good news is the world is making some headway on education. There are 40 million more children in school today relative to a decade ago, although 72 million children still lack primary education. There are now also as many girls in school as boys, although most children out of school are still girls. Natalie Poulsen stresses the importance of these achievements and of quality education. I think that when we think of this question, we really need to sit back and consider how education is important to our lives and think about how what our lives would be like if we didn't have an education. And then to look at a country that is trying to achieve long-term sustainable development for its citizens. How do you do that when you don't have enough teachers, when you don't have enough doctors, when you don't have enough engineers? So to me, education is really part of a, a long-term view of development. And I think that it's our collective responsibility to ensure that this massive portion of the population has the tools that they need to reach their full potential. We know that a person's earnings will increase 10% for every year of education that they receive. 
And if you look at, if, if all citizens of a country are um, given the opportunity to pursue quality education, that would equate to about a 1% increase in gross domestic product annually. Like Chris Dendy's before her, Natalie Paulson also stresses the work and research that's been done to identify solutions. And countries have done a lot of really um, great initiatives over the past decades, things like abolishing schools, school fees that have seen millions of more children enroll in school, things like um, school feeding programs and stipends for girls' education. But I think the single most important um, innovation, if you will, although it doesn't seem very innovative, but the single um, most important initiative that governments have undertaken in the past decade is to build comprehensive national education sector plans. So not dealing with education in a piecemeal fashion, but looking at the entire education system and how to strengthen it moving forward. At the 2002 G8 meeting in Kananaskis, Canada, leaders approved a new approach to support education. Through the Fast Track Initiative for Education for All, developing countries could create comprehensive national education plans and then get help from a pool of donors to implement it. Sounds simple enough. So why are we still so far off from achieving significant progress on education, as well as on maternal health? There's no single answer, but rather a whole mix of issues that have to do with political and financial constraints of governments in developing countries. The challenges of prioritizing multiple needs against limited budgets, the flatlining of aid commitments, unfair trade conditions, and tax evasion by multinationals. We'll touch upon many of these challenges in later podcasts. Here we will briefly look at two of them, aid and debt, and how they, like all the others, point to one thing, the failure of MDG number eight, the new global partnership that was supposed to help countries realize the other seven MDGs. As part of MDG 8, committing to a global partnership, developed countries were to increase their aid or development assistance budgets to 0.7% of gross national income by 2015. Gross national income is a country's gross domestic product, plus the income received from other countries, in the form of interest and dividends, minus similar payments it may have made to other countries. It's generally considered the measure of a country's wealth. The 0.7% target has a long history. In fact, it dates back to the 1969 UN Commission on International Development, chaired by former Canadian Prime Minister Lester Pearson. Dennis Howlett is the coordinator of Make Poverty History, part of an international network of groups making a global call to action against poverty. He talks about MDG 8 and explains why the 0.7% target is still important today. Well, it's a partnership. Um, many of the developing countries are financing part of the investment in, in health and education uh, through resource mobilization from within their own countries, but many of them can't do it on their own. They require aid and uh, debt cancellation. And so it was to be a partnership, a joint effort to try to achieve the Millennium Development Goals so that developed countries as well were uh, signatories to this, they were supposed to play their role. And a key part of it is achieving the 0.7% aid target of 0.7% um, of national income 
should be going as uh, official development assistance. To put this in context, if Canada's gross national income were $100, we would spend just 70 cents on aid to countries in the South. To date, only five countries have met the 0.7% target, while three or four others have set timetables for getting there. Canada, unfortunately, is not one of them. Uh, we're at number 16 or 18 out of 22 donor countries at the moment, and we're giving less than half of the 0.7. So we're down at about 0.33 is the estimate of what we're at uh, this year. And unfortunately, uh, even though we were uh, moving up very slowly with annual 8% increases in our aid budget uh, that were instituted in 2002, uh, the federal government in their last uh, federal budget just announced that they would be freezing the aid budget at 2010 levels. So this means that uh, we will, as we move forward in 2011 and onwards, we will start falling again in terms of the percentage. To meet that target of 0.7% of gross national income, Canada needs to increase our aid spending for the next 10 years by 14%. In fact, the government is heading in the opposite direction. It plans to reduce one quarter of its current budgetary deficit through cuts to foreign aid. This means that with the aid freeze, our spending is expected to decline to 0.28% by 2015. It's estimated the annual cost today of achieving the MDGs are around 150 billion US dollars. So it's still critical for donors to live up to their 0.7% commitment. These funds are vital to give countries what they need to achieve the MDGs. Dennis Howlett points out that not every country requires aid to achieve the MDGs. But he argues the decline in aid will hurt countries that need it the most. Well, some countries uh, don't need aid that much, like India, Bangladesh, uh, some of the Asian countries especially, are able to uh, generate enough resources domestically that they could use some help, like Bangladesh could probably still use some help, but, you know, they may be able to continue to make progress. But other countries, particularly those in Africa, uh, really will be hard hit. It means uh, they will, instead of going forward, they'll move going backwards on achieving those goals. And it means thousands, hundreds of thousands more people dying unnecessarily. The unraveling of aid budgets stings, especially because G8 leaders made major commitments at the 2005 G8 summit in Glen Eagles. At that meeting, eight governments committed to double aid to Africa by 2010, aiming for $25 billion by this year. While Canada has technically doubled its aid by 2010, by some accounts, the G8 are still 40% short of meeting those commitments. This, coupled with the recent decline in aid budgets in many countries, including Canada's, is extremely disappointing. Salil Shetty from the Millennium Campaign is not surprised about the G8's lackluster performance on aid and points out this is just one more broken promise. On the aid side, I think, you know, words are cheap and there's lots of promises. The delivery has not been as good. It's, the levels are going up 
but if you are asking me about Glen Eagle's commitments, there's a lot of shortfall. Out of the G8 countries, and not more than out of the eight, not more than two or three are anywhere close to meeting their commitments. So you know we have a big gap between what they say and what they do. It's not a new thing. They're they're quite well known for not keeping their promises. But you know what I say always is that if you break a promise, it's considered a sin. But if you break a promise you made to poor people, that's a crime. In fact, aid levels peaked in 2008 at around $120 billion U.S. That's a lot of money, but still 30 to 40 billion short of what's needed to achieve the MDGs. We'll talk in more detail about aid and its problems in a separate podcast. But back to MDG 8, the new global partnership, and the issue of debt cancellation. Nick Dearden explains why debt cancellation can make a difference. He's with the Jubilee Debt Campaign in the United Kingdom, one of a number of groups around the world demanding unconditional debt cancellation for the world's poorest countries. Well, essentially, one of the reasons the debt movement gained the support it did in the 90s was we looked at all manner of different countries in Africa, uh, Asia and Latin America, and we found that they were spending 30, 40, 50 percent of their budget every year repaying their debts, servicing their debts. And what that meant was in very poor countries that should have been spending money developing health infrastructure, developing education infrastructure, they weren't able to do that. So what's interesting is to look at what's happened since debt has been cancelled in some, some African countries. Dearden is referring to the same G8 summit in Glen Eagles that saw the promises made around aid increases. At this meeting, the G8 also agreed to cancel $40 billion in debts for 19 of the world's poorest countries. The idea was that freeing up countries from paying interest on debt or completely cancelling their debt stock would free up resources. Countries then could invest in education, health care, or other MDGs. Nick Dearden. So in Tanzania, since the debt's been cancelled, we've seen that Tanzania is now able to double the number of teachers that it has in schools. And it's been able to, as a result, double the intake of school kids that go to those schools. And because families now can't just send one children, one child to school, they can send as many as they want to school, um, they don't just send boys, they send girls to school as well. So it's had an enormous impact on gender equality, it's had an enormous impact on education levels. Salil Shetty with the UN Millennium Campaign agrees. I think debt cancellation is a, is a real sort of testimony of what uh, what can be done and what can make a difference. I mean, we have had 40 countries uh, the debts cancelled. I mean, for most debt campaigners, you know, it was kind of too little, too late, and a lot more needs to happen. But for the countries who have actually seen, uh, I mean, I, I mean, take Zambia, for example. I was there not so long ago. Zambia is on track to achieving five of the goals. And I remember that the government there is actually having a conversation for the first time about what they're going to do with their you know, additional resources they have there. Because in the past, all they were doing was paying off debt. In fact, before the Glen Eagle Summit, Zambia spent as much servicing its debts as it did on healthcare and education combined. Following the summit, 3.5 billion US dollars of Zambia's debt was cancelled. This freed up 189 million annually made in debt service payments. With the savings, the government allocated 30% of its annual budget to social spending. That meant abolishing medical user fees and pledging to recruit 800 medical personnel and just over 4,000 teachers. It also invested in infrastructure, drugs and food supplements, especially for people living with HIV and AIDS. At the time, it was financing 71% of the national budget on its own, leaving donors to make up the shortfall. In the end, however, Zambia couldn't implement some of these initiatives. Why? 
Institutions like the International Monetary Fund attach strings to the debt cancellation. This is an issue we'll look at in a later podcast. And ultimately, over the past two years, outside factors have reversed progress for a number of countries once made possible by debt cancellation. Dennis Howlett with Make Poverty History Canada explains. Well, because of climate change and the impacts of global economic crisis, uh, the progress that was being made has now stalled or even reversed in a number of areas. So what's required is not only to just keep the promises that were made initially to get to 0.7 or to, um, to uh, cancel debts and so on, we now need a redoubling of efforts. A lot of groups like Make Poverty History focus on increasing aid or official development assistance and debt cancellation for development. These are definitely two important factors. But clearly, for countries to really move ahead, the entire international financial system needs to change. This is Gemma Daba with the International Trade Union Confederation. The other shortcoming with the Millennium Development Goals is that it is very much oriented towards official development assistance. And the development framework is much broader than development assistance. It includes tackling all of the systemic issues that we have been dealing with, both in financing for development and responding to the crisis, with the idea of creating an enabling environment so that countries themselves would be able to grapple with their development problems. They would be equipped because they would no longer be strapped with debt. They would no longer have the kind of environment that's created by unfair trade or by uh, capital accounts, liberalization, and so on, they would be able to have the policy space to sequence their own development and be able to grapple with problems themselves. So these systemic issues and policy space issues and so on, which are all prerequisites for sustained and sustainable development, they're not really dealt with in the Millennium Development Goals. The issues of systemic change and financing for development help paint a much more complex picture of development. More and better aid and debt cancellation are both needed for developing countries to make progress on the MDGs. But countries must also be able to assert their rights in a wide variety of areas. These include making their own choices regarding trade, investment, tax and broader economic policies, providing quality public services that respond to the needs and interests of their respective populations, and providing full, decent, and productive work for all. So it is important to keep an eye on what countries are on track or off track from achieving the MDGs, or which of the MDGs are furthest behind, like sanitation, hunger, and child and maternal health. These are good indicators of where we need to target resources. But underneath all of that, the question of why these countries are off track is even more important and central to the debate than the actual numbers. Ban Ki-moon, Secretary-General of the United Nations. At the Millennium Development Goals Summit meeting in September in New York, I want to showcase success stories, scale them up, up, show the progress that aid has made possible, create partnership that will allow us to do even more. Where we are not on track, it's not because It's not because the goals are unreachable or because the time is limited, but it is because of unmet commitment 
and it is because of the lack of political will. Jerry Barr of the Canadian Council for International Cooperation agrees with the Secretary General. He says we have to get the money right. But we also have to get the politics or policies right too. The impoverishment of large numbers of people in the South has been a consequence of complex national and international economic, social and political processes and action to counter impoverishment is therefore a political process. In the absence of radical reforms for, great, for, for greater global equity on the part of developed countries beyond delivering more aid, an exclusive emphasis on MDG targets alone sets up poor people and poor countries to take the blame once again for their failure to achieve the unachievable. The emphasis should not be on whether a given country is failing or not to meet a given target. Rather, global action and national policy change should be based on an assessment of what is required of all countries as set out in international human rights law to give priority to maximum sustained progress against poverty. Rights are obligations of states, and states are key actors in ensuring the realization of development goals. It's about resources and responsibilities. It's about obligations and accountability to meet those obligations. It's about fair policies and freely made choices. And it's about politics. But perhaps above all, it's about generating the political will at home and abroad for change. Will the global economic crisis, the food crisis, and the climate crisis create the political will to achieve the MDGs? Chris Dendies from Results Canada helps us conclude. I think there's always hope. I think that there's always opportunity. And I think that um, we just have to keep pushing for uh, the political will that's necessary because nothing is impossible, whatever the climate. And sometimes great things are achieved under the most impossible, seemingly impossible circumstances. Can you help create the political will? For Definitely Not the G8, this is Fraser Riley King with the Halifax Initiative Coalition. The Halifax Initiative thanks CAW Canada Social Justice Fund, the Charles Stuart Mott Foundation, the Canadian Labour Congress, the International Development Research Centre, and the UN Millennium Campaign. Without Hugh's financial support, these podcasts would not have been possible.